The Books Podcast, presented by Tim Haig. This episode is recorded in front of a live audience at 21 Soho in London, in association with Walthamstow Rock and Roll Book Club. I ask you, gentlemen of the jury, is this the kind of book you'd like your wives and servants to read? Welcome to Books Podcast Live. Uh, I'm Tim Haig. Uh, we have on the site lots of wonderful books and and, uh, splendid authors and I hope you're all going to subscribe and listen to them but today is different today is special because we're here at uh, 21 Soho um, for our first live show which uh, we're quite excited about and of course we're going to talk to Philip Norman about his wonderful new biography of George Harrison before we start is there anybody here who doesn't really know who George Harrison was? <laughs> well, thank God for that, because it would have been a long evening for you. So, <clears throat> let's start off by saying, <sighs> Philip, did, did, did you find George Harrison was more interesting than you expected? Absolutely, much more interesting. Um, bewildering, in fact. <clears throat> this is a man who's a mass of contradictions. Uh, he uh, was called the quiet one, <clears throat> and Michael Palin remembered that he never seemed to stop talking. Yes. He uh, railed against the material world, and then wrote the first pop song complaining about income tax. Our tax man on, uh, on Revolver, Revolver, 1966. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he could rise to the, really the heights of nobility, as he did with <clears throat> his historic charity concert for Bangladesh. Um, which really was the first indication that rock stars weren't just a lot of greedy egotists, um, that the resonance of that concert still exists and people are still trying to outdo it. They never quite do. Um, That was the height of nobility, but then he would descend to the depth of disloyalty and sleaze by uh, seducing Ringo Starr's first wife. Um, That is breaking the first law of Beatles. You do not knock off another Beatles wife. We might have to talk about that. Well, basically, that's the whole interview now. Because <laughs> you've, you've covered it. But no. Oh, uh, there's one more thing, yes. Um, he was the only person that his wife, first wife, Patty Boyd, ever knew, who got much more tetchy and bad-tempered after he learned to meditate. Yes, that's interesting. <laughs> you, you, you make the point that he, he discovered religion, he discovered India, he discovered mm. all these, these uh, peaceful, and it didn't seem to make him happy. Well, it did in a way, because it gave, him a sort, it gave him a sort of foothold in the recording studio, because he was really very much neglected and passed over and sidelined, uh, because of this amazing creative dynamo of John Lennon and Paul McCartney. Um, and even the very gentlemanly and decent and honest record producer they had, George Martin, was so fascinated by what Lennon and McCartney were turning out at such a rate, with such huge steps of improvement, that he really just didn't notice George. He, he himself admitted, I was always rather beastly to George. I'm going and to quote your if book. I can, if I can oh, just say, yes. um, and the, so the, the Indian religion, he could bring Indian musicians into the studio and direct them himself. And that gave him an, an edge, really, before he really found his feet as a, as a songwriter. It is with a hard day's night that the paradox of being George Harrison becomes apparent, you write, unprecedentedly, ludicrously, suffocatingly famous, while at the same time undervalued, overlooked, 
and struggling for recognition. As early as that, Hard Day's Night was 1964, well, and he's already the second-class Beatle. Oh, no, no, right from the start. Um, he joined, he was 14, he taught himself to play guitar by listening to pop records on the radio, which, which there were not very many at the time. And he became such a good guitar player that he got into a group called the Quarrymen with John Lennon and Paul McCartney because he knew how to play the solos and how to play the intros that they didn't know how. Also, he was good at getting the chords, wasn't he? Oh, he had the ear for oh, yes. figuring out the chords in, on the records. That absolutely. He, he absolutely couldn't be bothered with education, but he taught himself to, to be a lead guitarist. Unfortunately, he was 14. His ears stuck out. He looked a child. <laughs> and um, John Lennon, for a long time, was saying, who's that bloody kid hanging around? You know, even when he was actually playing... Buddy Holly is intro to that'll be the almost no one else in Liverpool could play except George. But the interesting thing about the early days of the Beatles, until until John and Paul became this songwriting powerhouse, um, it was it was a much more equal uh, arrangement, at least musically. And George, it, it seems to me, and I think your book bears out, George, his whole time with the Beatles felt that he was a, a proper beetle, that he wasn't, uh, he wasn't the economy beetle, and always chafed because he, he felt an ownership of the Beatles that he thought was e equal to John and Paul's. Well, he, he never really did feel equal to them. That's the thing. There's a, Paul McCartney's autobiography that everybody now has forgotten called Many Years From Now, came out in the 90s, uh, describes Paul and John taking a little walk in Walton, the, wonderfully bourgeois suburb where John was brought up, the middle class, the working class hero was brought up. Um, and uh, because the very first recording they made was of Buddy Holly's That'll Be The Day, with an original song on the back, a country song written really by Paul McCartney, but because George did some vocals and of course did the, it was credited to McCartney Harrison. And John and Paul just discussed whether to add his name to the Lennon-McCartney. And they said, oh, no, 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 no let's do that, no. And that, that, of course, was the last time that he was the musical uh, equivalent or the, the same status as Paul McCartney in his entire life. Well, first time he ever, yes. Uh, only time he ever got a joint yeah. uh, recording credit. Um, and no, he was really always, if you look, at, <laughs> I'm ashamed to say this, if you look at the souvenir program for the film A Half Day's Night, which I could show you, um, <laughs> Uh, it actually coincided with George's 21st birthday. And you can look through these pages and there are all these jolly uh, uh, little stories from the set of the movie and everything. And there's a little about, about George's mum, who was a wonderful figure, actually. The only real Beatle fan of all the parents. And she was supportive in the way uh, that the other fantastic. parents were. There was worked. a little bit about her um, ringing him up uh, at precisely the hour that he'd been born in 1943. Perhaps he was in bed with someone else. He might not have liked that, but still extremely thoughtful. But otherwise, you have to take a magnifying glass to look in the official booklet for George's name. We tend to forget how young they were. I think George was still, still 26 when the Beatles recorded their very last track, I mean, outside of the ones they did for anthology, um, which is amazingly young when you think of the achievements that he had contributed to by that age. But, of course, this was the youth culture of the 60s where you didn't trust anyone over 30. And um, to be 20 was a bit of a tragedy, actually. <laughs> uh, and it just seemed natural, you know, the, these blokes, they're great. And, yes, they're, that, they're our age, as we were. 
Let's talk about George and songwriting a little bit. I made a, uh, a reference to achievements there, and um, he, he wrote some marvellous songs. John said something very unkind in an interview, didn't he? That George um, had had a, a sort of masterclass sitting at the feet of two, and he used a, a profane word, but two effing great songwriters, and implied that George had just sort of dropped lucky. There's something in that, though, isn't there? There is something in that, yes. He was watching these two instinctively master musicians at work. Um, but he had no way, he didn't have, you know, John had Paul and Paul had John. And they were symbiotic characters. One could start a song, the other one could finish the song. They were that close creatively. George had nobody. George had to work it out for himself. And uh, it, it, it took him quite a while. In fact, his, early, his first song was a kind of tetchy response to people saying why don't you write a song? And the song was called Don't Bother Me. <laughs> and that's very, very George, actually. Let me ask your opinion, though. Do you think it's a good song? It's not that good a song, but it's a song. And then and he, took some, he actually took quite big leaps after that. The first one, they didn't think worthwhile to put a, a John and Paul backing vocal. But then I Need You in, in Help is a really good song. He did get onto it very quickly and started to started to be recognisably a good songwriter, but still was rationed on their albums. And getting three on Revolver was just amazing. You know, they had nine or ten. Like Did he have more songs, though? I mean, I, I always thought his breakthrough was Rubber Soul. He's got If I Needed Someone and Think For Yourself on Rubber Soul. I thought those were really... They were Beatles songs. They were Beatles-level good. Did he actually have that many more at this time? He had so many because either he, they were turned down by the star chamber of Lennon-McCartney or he just didn't bother to submit them because he thought they would be rejected. So when he finally breaks away and makes this triple, uh, debut triple album, All Things Must Pass, he's got a stack of... He's still using up his spare songs years into the future. Well, you say that, but uh, George, George Martin turned down only a northern song for Sergeant Pepper and he was right. Only a northern song is not a, it's not a good piece of work. No, but that gets very George because it's really complaining about his royalties from northern <laughs> songs. <laughs> um, so it has its sort of value historically, although it is a terrible song. And, it, and he repeated it, another song came later, sounded almost the same. Um, but uh, that was what made him go away and write something, you know, which, which was an extraordinary departure, which was you know, Indian-influenced. And, and you mean within you, without you? And even, even John, I think perhaps just a dig at Paul, but still, <laughs> John, uh, John later on said, uh, that's the only one I really like on the whole album. Yeah, but John was given to yeah. saying outrageous things. Uh, of Sergeant course. Pepper was a, a moderately good album. But I, I do think that within you, without you is a, um, a, a really substantial piece of work. Because it's not, it's not a Western song, and it's not a proper Indian song either. It's a hybrid, isn't it? It is. I mean, first of all, it was by accident because John had written this song called Norwegian Wood, which was a covert um, admission of marital infidelity with a woman called Sunny Freeman, who was the Scandinavian wife of, uh, actually German, pretended to be Scandinavian because it was soon after the Second World War, of Robert Freeman, who took the famous half-shadow photograph. And John kind of owned up to this... Uh, um, very, very brief affair in, in the song Norwegian Wood because she had a, an apartment that was wooded, wooded in the way, wood panelled. Um, and George picked up a sitar for that. It was in the cupboard. There was a lot of instruments in a cupboard in their recording studio. And, uh, and John just, uh, George just simply played the melody, but it gives that 
gives a wonderful sort of sense of sort of unease to that song, which is like a little Harold Pinter play or Samuel Beckett play. In 14 lines, a plot develops and there's a climax, which is actually a, a con arson, in fact, typically John. Um, and so after that, George then decided to take it seriously. And uh, I mean, if you see the film Help now, of course, it would never be shown because the whole thing turns uh, on a subplot about a mysterious Indian sect who are trying to recover a ring from Ringo's finger that, has, that they use with the, for their human sacrifices. With Leo McKern. Yes, sort of Leo McKern. Everybody made up to be an Indian. Everybody made no, up I to be an Indian. Um, and that was when George really started to play around and then he met Ravi Shankar and Shankar became his tutor. Now, the difference between Norwegian Wood, though, and Within You, Without You, is, is that in Norwegian Wood, it's just it's an instrument playing a, a Western line. It's just colour. It's just a different uh, tone, isn't it? Whereas he starts to bring in Indian influences and Indian musical influences. Absolutely. And in fact, and it's funny because it's um, the, 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 the conversion to the sort of the, the, the exotic, you know, and the bizarre um, and the spiritual um, is always said to be John's um, Tomorrow Never Knows. And, uh, but actually, that's got... John wanted... I think he told John he wanted an effect like 10,000 monks chanting on a different hill, distant hillside. Um, but actually, within you, without just a little ripple of a sitar, and it just makes you sit up and, what's coming now? You know, and It is extraordinary what comes. Before we move on from, uh, from his songwriting, um, there were other songs that, the, that Lennon McCartney turned down, which suggests to me that actually their, their instincts were not so great. I always think All Things Must Pass is a wonderful song. <laughs> And it could have been on the White Album. It could have been on um, uh, you know, Abbey Road. And yet John and Paul turned it... Was it just, just curmudgeonly jealousy? I think they were just used to, you know, George just still being a bit the, that bloody kid. You know. And he obviously was moving into a new dimension with the song, like, All Things Must Pass, My Sweet Lord. Um, and so the result was that when he went to make that triple album... Uh, he had just an extraordinary selection to, to, to choose from, which were instant. Eric Clapton led a very good house band um, for that recording. And, of course, they all thought it was wonderful, and, and it was. So the All Things Must Pass album is his breakthrough. And it's, is, it, is it true that it's, it's the biggest-selling solo Beatles album, even, even more than Band on the Run? That's, well, in fact, it certainly far outsold either John's or Paul's debut so, so up and still does so I, I call it an unextinguishable last laugh that he that he that he has he never made another album anything like as good did he well the next one of course was tremendous you know tremendously hugely advanced sales but nothing quite touched that because it was a mixture of the divine which in fact was uh, for any faith or any creed but also this very high octane pop um, just at a point where people were saying, now, what's the what are the 70s going to be like? And to a lot of people, it, it looked like that. And there were, there were some very good songs on it. it in, in the same way that anybody, especially a solo Beatle, is going to have some duds on any, on any album because they don't have the other guys to back them up. All Things Must Pass actually does mop up all those uh, decent songs that he'd written, and then it brings in Apple Scruffs as well. So you can't have everything. Yes, I mean, that's so George. Yes, the, um, the, <laughs> yes. the, all this is so George. Um, the, the, uh, the young women who waited outside 
the, the Apple office in Savile Row, their company office, or their individual homes. They waited outside in all weathers all through the year. Um, the ones who waited outside Paul McCartney's house in Cavendish Avenue got so fit from being out in all weathers that when he tried to get away from his Mini Cooper, they could beat the Mini Cooper. <laughs> It was almost impossible to, to equal the effect of that, that. And there again, George, you know, um, he, his, his, I'm sure you're familiar with the album cover. George dressed up for gardening in Wellington boots on a wet lawn surrounded by garden gnomes. How many garden gnomes? Four garden gnomes, Four garden gnomes of course. Yes, yes, yes. One of them playing the bass left-handed, yes. And just, in, <laughs> just in case anybody didn't get the point. Yes. Yeah, he, he wasn't always subtle, was he? He wasn't subtle. He could be there. There again, you have the. He could strike exactly the right note if he wanted to, but he had a terrible tongue, a terrible acid tongue, which once or twice really almost wrecked the Beatles' future. George Martin was a tremendously nice, civilized, decent, honest man, but in those days they weren't called producers. They were called A and R, our artist and repertoire men, and they were comp they were gods. They chose the material, they supervised the recording, they decided what would be released and when would be released. And that's what George Martin was, an A&R man. And very nicely for the Beatles, Beatles did an audition with a lot of different stuff that they did. Very nicely for an A&R man, George Martin said, um, took them into the control room and said, um, well, have a listen, and if there's anything you don't like, just let me know. And George said, well, I don't like your tie for a start. <laughs> And it's, it's really interesting because John had the reputation for being the, no, the John outspoken. Was, no, John, George. John was blushing to the roots. Yeah. George Martin or another A&R man would have said, right, that's bugger off, you know. You, well, you make the point. Yeah, in fact, I think you described George as the most intransigent Beatle. When, when George had made his mind up, that was it. That was it, except that, you know, it, in, on the stage he had the workhouse, the work. Oh, sorry, job of lead guitarist, which meant coming up with a riff, an intro, and every one of the, the ones that he came up with resonate in your head along with the, the lyrics and along with the vocal. Um, but off, yes, off stage, he, uh, Walter Shenson, the producer of Hard Day's Night, said once his mind was made up, it was impossible. In fact, Walter Shenson was witness to another of these terrible moments with George um, at the party after the premiere, the royal premiere. The two trendy royals of the time, Princess Margaret and Lord Snowden, were, were present. And uh, they were having drinks, and the royal couple just didn't want to leave. They loved all this sort of rock and roll stuff. Um, but in the next room, there was a buffet. And George goes up to Walter Shannon and says, Walter, we're starving. When do we eat? Mind you, that came back to haunting, didn't it, oh, when wait, Apple was set? Oh, uh, you've got more of that. I'm afraid so. <laughs> of course. Sorry, sorry. The guards van has still to come. Yeah. So, um, Walter Shenson knows enough about... Ra no, George, you can't. You can't eat until, until the princess goes. You can't. It's protocol. Goes straight up to Princess Margaret. Says, well, Walter says, we can't eat until you go and we're starving. <laughs> Which, of course, Princess Margaret probably loved, you know, because she's surrounded by sycophants all the time. But, and again, you know, George Martin, thank, thank goodness for the future of Western culture. George Martin laughed at the mockery of his tie. The, the, the buffet one, though, reminds me, there was a story when, uh, it, when they'd set up Apple, 
And George rather unwisely invited a bunch of Hell's Angels over from America to come and stay and nearly, nearly got killed over a buffet. That's right. He, he, was, he was on his travels and uh, he vaguely remembered someone saying he'd like to come and see him when he's in line. Oh, yes, mate, come along, fine. It's a troop of Oakland Hell's Angels led by um, two monster angels called Frisco Pete and Billy Tumbleweed. They sound lovely. Yes. And um, the, Apple gets a call from the airport, says, um, we've just been asked to pay the freightage on 18 Harley Davidson. Charge it to you. <laughs> and Apple paid it. They did. And in fact, they turn up and they move into the studio, the, the basement studio, and with, with their female companions and everything, and they turn it immediately into a Hell's Angel cave. Um, and there's a Christmas party, one of Apple's many philanthropic gestures uh, for the children of employees, um, where they're entertained by a party with John and Yoko there dressed as mother and father Christmas. <laughs> Any less likely castings, hard to imagine. Um, and also what is billed as the largest turkey in Great Britain. As it's brought in, it takes about three people to carry it through the door. The Hells Angels descend on it and rip it to shreds before it's even got to the table to be served. And so they, they depute George. The, the toughies, like Neil Aspinall, the roadie, get George to tell them to move on. And he manages to do it without upsetting them. He, he sends a memo around saying, don't upset the Hells Angels or you might end up dead. But... He does it. He says, well, there's yin and there's yang and there's going and there's coming and now you've come and now you go. And they were, okay, man, okay. And they go? They go. Mm. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about, um, well, the, the topic I've raised, George and women, um, because this is a fraught and vexed issue. Um, he was married a couple of times, but he, was, he, he didn't behave himself terribly well. It didn't seem so at the time because, you know, he had a... He, he very much liked the, in, the Indian religion philosophy, partly because of the love god Krishna could have unlimited concubines. <laughs> and he saw himself as a bit of a Krishna. He did, yes. <laughs> um, and in fact, uh, he thought it, it, it... There was an old rule in the rock and roll, perhaps still goes on, that, that away from home, it doesn't count. And that was always... what He... he um, he used to go into the local pub or, or in New York into Max's Kansas City, which is the very fashionable hangout in the early 70s, with a pocket full of little rubies, tiny rubies, which he would sort of fling on the table and wait for some woman to come up and sort of pick up a ruby. Oh, that's nice. You know, that would be it. You know, it, was like, it wasn't quite like roulette because he never lost. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he, he was... He, he, he got married very young because young men in those days did get married young, and particularly from the north. And Patty Boyd was very gorgeous. She, she was a very famous fashion model at the time. And she did say that he was just sweet and lovely until he learned to meditate. <laughs> and um, he was on a, a plane once with Derek Taylor, the, the wonderful press officer they used to have. Um, and he, George was mumbling, and he had a little wheel spinning round. And the cabin attendant... Um, very innocently said, would you like your lunch now, Mr. Harrison? He said, fuck off, can't you see I'm meditating? 
Now, that is not what meditation is usually for, is it? It's not. <laughs> but it, it, what, it's also a question of what women are for. It, it's all very well to say, well, you know, he was off, uh, you know, when he wasn't at home. We'll come to what he did at home in a minute as well. But um, it, there was no source for the gander, was there? It was, um, you know, it was, it was a very sexist, very one-sided Absolutely. freedom. Absolutely. Swinging, the, the swinging only went one way in the swinging 60s, of course. Yes, it was for the men. Um, and Clapton was even worse. Clapton had no, didn't have to take any moral decisions whatsoever or do anything for himself. Even when he had to take a driving test, his roadie took it for him. Um, and in, uh, they got married in Tucson at the beginning of a Clapton tour, um, and he had to give a blood sample, and the roadie took the blood sample as well. <laughs> well, probably a, a good idea. A, red, a federal offence, in fact. Um, so he'd really... George... In many ways, I mean, George he had a very nice side and a good side. The trouble was they never knew which side it was going to be. He could switch from, you know, chanting and being very pious to saying, where's the coke and where, where are we going to party? And then switch back again before they realised what was happening. Well, George was great friends with Eric Clapton. Everybody knows that. Everybody also knows that, uh, uh, that uh, Clapton married Patty Harrison uh, later on. One of the virtues of your book, and it's a virtue of all your rock biographies, is that you're wonderfully lucid on how all that happened. It doesn't reflect well on, on George. He was, he was trying to uh, uh, pass uh, women off to Eric and then trying to get... Uh, he tried to get uh, Patty to sleep with Eric because he wanted to sleep with Patty's baby sister. That's right. Well, she wasn't quite a baby, but she was very young. She was very young. <laughs> yes, and, uh, you know, and very innocent. It didn't actually happen, yes, but... but Patty was the, tr the trading chip for that. It was in Liverpool. Actually, I was on that tour and I never knew anything about it. <laughs> um, but yes, you know. The, um, but and, and also, Patty's, Patty's um, younger sister ended up with Eric. She did, yes. yes. And, um, and, uh, but, but then Eric was writing Layla about Patty. So all the time that he... Because he... Eric... You've written a wonderful biography of Eric Clapton as well, of course. But Eric was, um, was obsessed with, uh, with Patty and took Paula as a sort of substitute? Well, he, he didn't... Act, well, yes, he did, actually, no. But George, George didn't get, go with Patty. Um, Eric didn't go with Patty. Who? You're going to be confused now. It, it's, well, in the book, though, it's, yeah. it's beautifully clear. Oh, thank you. Well, there you are. Yeah. <laughs> I'm getting a bit beyond myself here. Um, yeah. um, there, there were... Can I just tell you that, oh, that Patty had to put up with sort of being humiliated by uh, um, Ringo's wife suddenly turning up at the house, their house, Hen uh, Friar Park, um, and just saying, I've come to see George in the studio, and she'd be there the next morning. Um, finally, Patty has had enough of this, um, and she goes looking for George, not very easy in Friar Park since there are about 20 bedrooms. She finally runs down the, the correct uh, bedroom and George opens the door to her knock and Maureen is on a mattress on the floor. And George says, oh yes, she's uh, feeling a bit tired, she's having a bit of a lie down. <laughs> this is supposed to wa wash, you know, with his wife. But th th this is the point, isn't it? George did not confine his philandering to being on the road and keeping it no. out of... He, he took the women into his house. You, you've got a story about... Uh, it's uh, Chrissy Wood, Ronnie Wood's uh, wife, and he's, he's doing the same thing with her in Patty's house. Yes. Patty is a wonderful, wonderful woman in many ways, and her lack of bitterness is... And she's so full of humour as well. 
But when she sees this sight of George, obviously in flagrante, um, any, many wives on the European continent would reach for a 12-bore shotgun. <laughs> Patty goes and gets two water pistols and squirts them with water. And then she gets a couple of the studios nearby where George is expected to be. He gets two engineers to go up to the roof and from the flagstaff is flying a, an OM flag, which means meditating done here. And he, she gets to haul down the OM flag and she's found a, a Jolly Roger flag, a pirate flag <laughs> that they had at one of their parties and the two engineers put up the Jolly Roger. And that means Patty has had enough. And it's great stylish behaviour for me. So. And eventually she has had enough. She gives in to Eric Clapton. She finally leaves George. After a long, long time. She doesn't, long time. Want, she doesn't want to. She, she sees flashes of the sweet person he used to be. But eventually, yes, she goes off with Eric, who immediately becomes an alcoholic for 18 years. Later, George meets Olivia, um, who he then marries. Um, I, I wonder, after all that background, how did he find, well, contentedness uh, with her and, and this is, <laughs> this is where I'm going, was he faithful to Olivia at all? Well, evidently not, according to a sex worker in Los Angeles known only as Tiffany. <laughs> Tiffany, yes, okay. Um, who uh, reported that when she kept her tryst with George, he was playing the ukulele and singing a George, George Formby song. It must have been my little stick of Blackpool rock. <laughs> <laughs> you think so. I wish I'd put that in the book, actually, I do. Um, and she said... Um, he just kept on giving one lick after another, and she meant lick of the song. <laughs> <laughs> so did he find more happiness? Did he find more contentedness? Evidently he did, and Olivia was a, you know, a, a, she, she was a, a seemingly very calm person who could take all of this, you know, rock star treatment, and who immediately, although she came from quite a sort of a modest um, la, la, Latino yeah, yeah. background, um, she, she sort of instantly got this uh, extraordinary house called Friar Park, where every single thing is done on the, not a friar motif, but a monk motif. So you can't even switch the light on because the light switch is a monk's face. It sounds an extraordinary place. And uh, the garden is like an early theme park. Uh, so there's a miniature uh, of the Matterhorn, which you can actually climb, or there's a replica of the Capri Blue Grotto. And underneath are all these caves full of garden gnomes and other things, <laughs> skeletons. And it, this man who built the house had a warped, weird sense of humour as well as much more money that was good for him. And that appealed to George, because George really had a sense of humour. He, you know, we, we think of him as the quiet beetle and the very spiritual beetle. He, he, uh, he loved to laugh. He did. Well, in fact, his, one of the sort of things that got him through the very horrible business of the Beatles break, breakup, which went over a long time, Mm -hmm. really starting 68, 69, uh, were the Monty Python troupe, um, whose show was on television at that time on BBC, the very first series. And um, yes, and he, <laughs> that's how he came to know Eric Idle and people like that, and even appeared in a spoof of, about the Beatles um, called The Ruttles, um, and uh, he appeared as a, a television reporter um, talking to someone who was meant to be Derek Taylor, about the thefts from the Apple house. And behind them, people are coming out of the house carrying copying machines and television sets. But appearing in it, that's the, the, the sort of good Beatle seal of approval, isn't it? If, if you're in the, in the spoof. Yes, and in fact, um, somebody, he was watching 
the filming one day and a Beatles fan was around, asked him to move over because she wanted to see the bloke playing him. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, that is is true, though. He became not anonymous after the Beatles, but he he withdrew considerably. Tell me about the Dark Horse tour. Was that the the trigger to him retreating from sort of the the high-profile, high-octane megastardom? Well, of course, one of the reasons that um, he was the, one of the main instigators of the Beatles breaking up was because he hated the tours. Um, there was virtually no security, uh, particularly in America. And so he would sometimes be trying to play the guitar with perhaps two hysterical young women dangling from his neck and still meant to find the chord. And then it's put to him that, you know, because in the 70s you you're not selling so many singles, you have to promote an album by going on tour. And he does this uh, tour, he's got his own record label by then, he, take, he does take Olivia with him. And he, he had an unfortunate penchant for falling ill as well, which we haven't mentioned. Like at the Ed Sullivan show, he, he almost didn't go on the broadcast of the Ed Sullivan show in 1964 because he had a strep throat. It was very, very, and Brian Epstein had to keep it really quiet. He went on, did the broadcast with a temperature of 104. And uh, he got that sort of same bad strep throat on this tour. Unfortunately, he started off with that lyric, what I feel I can't say. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't really get that one. Um, But uh, it was a quite unhappy tour. And he wanted to, because people wanted him to play Beatles music and he didn't. And he told uh, Bill Graham, the promoter, you know, know, people want their money back, they can have it. He was going to play his own stuff. It's interesting about money because, uh, of course, he he made quite a lot. But he had some problems with money as well. Um, And and it, it mattered to him. He always, because he had a very small portion of the Northern Songs Company, which was really the Lennon-McCartney publishing company, and so did Ringo, that a tiny bit. That's why he wrote only a Northern Song, Mm -hmm. because he was just getting pennies, really, for that. Um, But unfortunately, um, he... First of all, he was quite keen on having Alan Klein as the Beatles' manager. Um, And so when Paul McCartney really sort of cut off from the others because McCartney quite rightly said Klein was a crook. Um, the others were sort of charmed by his street sort of manner. John, also, Alan Klein was very good at figuring how to get under the skin of, particularly John Lennon. It was, but he didn't really... George really couldn't get under... <laughs> you know, uh, he could never get under George's skin. George liked Alan Klein because he looked like Barney Rubble in the Flintstones. <laughs> Um, well, that's what he told me, he told me personally that. Um, but later on, he was very, very anxious to have a... He went through a lot of grief over the plagiarism sweet, suit. Um, he was said to have plagiarised a song called uh, He's So Fine by the Chiffons in 1963 with My Sweet Lord, with the main riff in My Sweet Lord. Um, and he really wanted a more of a financial manager rather than just like someone fixing up his, his gigs. And he met this man who had worked for Peter Sellers, who was another great favourite of his, um, called uh, Dennis O'Brien. And Dennis O'Brien was a much more subtle, but much more insidious crook than Alan Klein had ever been. Um, and they f- accidentally fell into film production because the Monty Python film, Life of Brian, 
which would never be shown today. It's so full of sacrilege and offending everybody. It would never get. I liked it too. Yeah, yes, yes, I agree. Yes, bring on the sacrilege. But still, uh, the, the financiers pulled the plug. And George, having spent years lovingly restoring Friar Park, mortgaged it to let them finish the film. And that, with that result, he was in the film business. Again, another side of George's and perhaps remembered so well. Um, but in fact, then they were, for every uh, large bank loan they took to finance, which they did, some of you know, the quite important British films of the 1980s, um, they were both, O'Brien and George, supposed to sign the bank guarantees, but actually only George was signing them. Um, and so in the end, he was liable for repayments of something around £32 million. And Dennis O'Brien at this point, living high on the hog, he's got um, yachts and, 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 and properties that George couldn't even aspire to. That's right. Well, there were two accountants, two sort of figuring in this, un, in this unmasking of Dennis O'Brien. First of all, um, in the very... In, right after the life of Brian, a young accountant called Steve Abbott, noticed that George uh, was so short of ready money that he would have to drive into the office to get 50 pounds in cash to pay his gardener. But his partner, Dennis O'Brien, uh, had a, a yacht and a private island and, uh, and had parked George's money all over the world in dodgy accounts and dodgy offshore um, banks, which George really couldn't get at. You mentioned um, my sweet lord, and that he was uh, he was sued for that. You, and you quote Patty uh, Patty Boyd as saying he was absolutely mortified to be sued because, of course, it wasn't a deliberate plagiarism. I had never realised until I read your book um, that Alan, that that was largely Alan Klein putting the boot in. Well, it, when, it's, when the, the plagiarism suit started uh, by a very tiny company called Bright Tunes, sounds so innocent and sweet, um, but happened to have the copyright of uh, He's So Fine. Klein was still notionally working for George um, and uh, said, I can fix this. And, but during the course of a few months, Klein parted from the Beatles and George was going to be the first one he sued, he was going to sue them all. Um, and George then, and then Klein immediately went to Bright Tunes and tried to encourage them to sue him for even more. Um, and it was, a, but what I didn't know, what George was nervous about that song himself, and he released it first of all, um, uh, recorded by Billy, his great friend Billy Preston. Um, it was rather like sort of dipping his elbow into, you know, into the hot water to see if it hurt. And not, nobody, because Billy Preston did a kind of soul version of it, not a sort of, you know, spiritual sort of version, no one complained. And uh, so th then it came out. Uh, We've yeah. said some uh, slightly negative things about George Harrison. Oh, he had a marvellous side as well. Let's talk about the concept for Bangladesh a bit. Um, how did that come about? And, and, and what was its impact, its, its, uh, its aftermath? Well, it was really the first notion of there being something called a rock community. We, we, we now use that phrase, of course, because rock stars were all meant to be these sort of selfish egomaniacs who only thought of themselves. And indeed, many of them were. But George happened then to have a relationship, uh, artistic relationship, with the greatest exponent of Indian music at the time, whose career had increased hugely by knowing George, obviously, Ravi Shankar. And Ravi Shankar's, some of his own family were caught up in the, in the birth agonies of Bangladesh, um, which was not only um, uh, uh, the 
regular Pakistan sending a military to crush the new government, but also terrible uh, floods and famine, and Bangladesh was in a dreadful way. And, uh, but George, instead of just sort of saying, yes, I'll give so many millions, George personally went around his friends and got them to play in this uh, magnificent concert. Well, there were two concerts, actually. They had to put on a second one um, at Madison Square Garden, um, which suddenly, I mean, suddenly put Bangladesh on, on the map and people realized the predicament of this country. Um, but also, it was a magnificent gesture. It was purely altruistic. It was, yeah. it was just a, a, a beautiful thing to do. And because, you know, he, he, Ravi Shankar was, he said, really the most impressive person he'd ever met because a man who was a genius um, and the absolute master of his instrument uh, was so modest and so... And, and Shankar became his, his tutor, in fact, in the sitar. So he felt a great personal obligation to Ravi Shankar. But then, he got, he, he, again, he didn't get underlings to round up these people. He phoned them up himself. He, he phoned up Bob Dylan, who said yes, still didn't mean yes, of course. Right up until the last minute, uh, George's running order said, Bob, query. And then he looked across the other side of the city, and there was Bob with his mouth organ. You know, so because, of course, there was no blueprint no. for this. Nobody had done that. George effectively invented the charity concert. Yes, he did. And um, you know, there have been other bigger ones, but the, the impact that that made, and uh, you know, that, uh, it was written in Rolling Stone, um, this you know, rock you know, found some dignity with this. We've talked about George as a uh, second-class Beatle. Um, he, he did find ways. In a way, his whole life was, was, uh, was spent looking for um, a, a better vehicle, wasn't it? He, in, in, uh, in the late 60s, he's going to America and hanging out with Bob Dylan and the band, Bob Dylan's backing band, who were all wonderful musicians. And they accept him as an equal, they, and, and that, that must have been intoxicating for him. It was, because, yes, the band, Patty said it was so difficult to have a favourite member of the band because they were all adorable. Um, and I, I can't really quarrel with that. They were. Um, and, of course, they were the band that accompanied Dylan on this, on this historic tour when he changed over to electric and was booed every night. Um, but it wasn't only you know, other guitarists. Really, he never rated himself much as a guitarist. He said he was an okay guitarist. What do you think? How, how good a guitarist do you think he was? I think he was good in the sense that he, he, he could plant a phrase in a song that you remembered as long as you remembered the song. Um, and he also, later on, with this, in, in the, uh, particularly in All Things Must Pass, he made a guitar sound that was... A, as identifiable and inimitable as um, Jerry Lee Lewis arpeggios on the piano or Stevie Wonder's harmonica. Well then, finally, would George have been happier if he could have been like a jobbing guitarist or even a star guitarist in another band than the Beatles um, without that kind of pressure to be a, 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 an ersatz Lennon and McCartney? Would he have been happier in a different band. Well, he was actually, because on that tour that I mentioned, Clapton, in one of Clapton's nicer moods, had said, come and join, just be in the band. Clapton was going on tour with this folk rock trio called Delaney and Bonnie. Who were, Bonnie Bramlett was a wonderful singer. Delaney was a bit iffy. Mm. But, um, and in fact, it was D Delaney Bramlett who said he put the idea for the slide guitar motif into George's head. But that was just completely unique to George, that. But on that tour, 
I, I was a, in those days, you didn't get half an hour in a hotel room with a star, you, you went around with them. And I was in the wings uh, on the first night, thinking, that bloke over there in the black Stetson looks a bit like George Harrison. And it was, actually. He was playing rhythm guitar at the back of the stage. And he came off the stage and said, oh, they're playing live, it's really a gas. You know. <laughs> yeah. After how, how did that little Richard Medley go? Was it me? I've forgotten. You know. And then, of course, he, he invents the Travelling Wilburys. Uh, again, almost as a way of having, having the, the band experience he'd always wanted. Because they were all stars in their own right. Um, they had nothing to prove. They liked it. They loved each other. They all liked the ukulele, which helped, because George had this strange passion for this little y younger cousin of the guitar that just goes plinkety-plonk. Sorry, any players? <laughs> um, but so they all used to sort of they record in the studio all night, and then they'd have coffee and ukuleles at dawn, as I think Tom Petty said, I think. He, he almost ought to have recorded a ukulele album, shouldn't he? He should, sure he he should have done his best, his greatest hits as a ukulele album. It's true, and I mean, I know the ukulele now is sort of, there are connoisseurs, and in fact, he got, he, one of the biggest thrills when he was rather past getting many thrills, um, he was presented with the ukulele owned by George Formby, um, engraved with George Formby's name. And, and, uh, and it was a, 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 a prized possession? Absolutely, yes. It, it's like a kid with a Christmas present. This other musician uh, saw it happen, yeah. Mm. Well... The book is uh, George Harrison, The Reluctant Beetle by Philip Norman. It's published by Simon & Schuster at £25, uh, and it's absolutely marvellous. I urge you to read it. Philip, thank you very much. Thank you very much. That was the Books Podcast, presented by Tim Haig. Email Tim on tim at bookspodcast.com, Twitter at bookspodcast.com, and Facebook at Books Podcast Tim. Now then, uh, we'd like to see if anybody in the audience has got any questions for Philip. This is the bit where I get to sit back. And we've got one over here. Yes. Um, can you talk a little bit about his relationship with Ringo as the other outsider, you know, be, with Paul and John being so tight? Well, yes, Ringo sort of brought out the best in him, apart from George cuckolding him by sleeping with his wife. And, but otherwise, otherwise, Mrs. Lincoln, you know, did you enjoy the play? Yes. Um, so, so, and, so, and when Ringo started a solo career, which he did quite early on, actually, with some, some, just some standard songs that he thought his mum would like in Liverpool, and George was the one who helped him do a bit of songwriting for the Abbey Road album. Um, and through the Beatle Wars, they managed to maintain their friendship. Anybody else with questions? Oh. Thank you. Uh, hello, Philip. And uh, I'm also a great fan of your novel, Everyone's Gone to the Moon, incidentally, which I remember in enjoying enormously, and I reread recently. My question is, what is it like to be a Beatles biographer in 2023, given that those who are still alive are all 80 and, and so on, or 80 plus? Did you find anyone to go on record who hadn't spoken before about the Beatles or were saying new things about a George that uh, they'd never gone on record before? Yes, you, th this is always possible. And on, in the books I've written before, I've tried to sort of put this, at least one surprise per page. The trouble is with the Beatles that they are, have become something like a worldwide religion. And anywhere you go in the world and mention them, Prague or the Philippines or anywhere, people immediately light up. 
Um, and that was why when George died only a couple of months after 9-11, all the front pages, all the TV bulletins were cleared. That was the story. And nobody said this is um, trivialization at all. Um, but actually being a Beatle, bi I didn't mean to be a bi Beatle biographer. I thought in the 70s that there, would, there was still a story to tell about the Beatles. And everybody I knew said, you're mad. Everybody knows everything there is to know about the Beatles. Nowadays, if I wanted to write a collection of Ringo's laundry lists, I think I'd get an advance. <laughs> but that, that, was, that was the way it was. And uh, the trouble was that I thought I would just write this book on the Beatles and then move on to another subject. But of course, there was no moving on. I'm like Michael Corleone, you know. I think I'm out and they pull me back in. <laughs> <laughs> Do we have uh, one more question, perhaps? <clears throat> when do you think... I know they were always, when you first wrote Shout, they were, as a band, insanely huge. But actually, when you look back at the reviews, apart from the review of All Things Was Passed, which was rave across the board, they were highly criticised in the 70s, weren't they? Every McCartney album was slaughtered in the media. Um, and a lot of Lennon's, including his last one. When do you think they became this almost like religious thing that, uh, I think it was after you'd done the first version of Shout, and what, what turned it into something almost kind of theological, you know, rather than a brilliant rock band that had been a huge, huge success? That's what they were at the end of the 70s. You know, the, 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 that, those two albums, the two compilations, the red and the blue vinyl albums were still selling lots. But everyone was, you know, thinking about, you know, the new romantics and punk and everything. What turned it was Lennon's assassination. Um, <clears throat> because the Beatles had never really officially broken up. And all through the 70s, they were expected to return. They were always sort of in denial about having been the Beatles. We didn't have that useful phrase at the time. But uh, the one who didn't seem to be as much as the others was John. And he'd recently re-emerged after five years um, of not doing... He was doing music all the time, but apparently not, having resigned from what he called the game. Um, and I thought possibly at the end I'd left a space um, that I could get over to New York and talk to him. And then one night I get this call saying that he's been shot. Um, and that was when... That was when second Beatlemania started that's still going. And that was really what turned it. And, and that second wave for people not only who weren't born when the Beatles broke up, but whose, whose kids weren't born when the Beatles broke up. There is something about the incredible charm of this music that is, seems irresistible to anybody of any age, any culture, any race. I, uh, I think I read that you're not going to do any more biographies. You, 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 you're calling it a day. Um, is that true? It's bad news for Ringo if it is. <laughs> I won't say that would just be a booklet rather than a book, but uh, uh, I won't say that. I must well. gracious. Uh, Ringo's laundry list, actually, has, has occurred to me. Philip, thank you very much, and thank all of you for coming. This was a pleasure. Thank you so much.